Well, let me invite you to take your Bible this morning and turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. For the last few times together, we've been looking at Isaiah 6. Last time we looked at the vision, that was in verses 1 through 4, the confession that's found in verse 5, and the cleansing that's found in verses 6 and 7. And now we're picking up at verse 8 and taking us to the end of the chapter, which is through verse 13. And this section here is the confession. This is, I'm sorry, the commission. This is really what naturally follows as all of these other things that follow in this sequence. This is the commission Isaiah received from the Lord. Let's listen to what it says. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. All of us have been given a commission. And that commission is commonly referred to in Matthew 28, 18 through 20 as the Great Commission. You're familiar with those words. It says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's a commission that's been given to every child of God, initially given to the disciples after Jesus had resurrected from the grave. And that commission is also what we're seeing here in Isaiah chapter 6. But before we can do this, we, like Isaiah, must first be cleansed. If you remember, when Isaiah saw the Lord, he knew that the Lord saw his sin. And this caused him to pronounce judgment on himself and confess his uncleanness. And according to verses 5-7, through the Lord cleansed and forgave him, as seen in one of the seraphim flying to him with a live coal and touching his lips. And after he was cleansed, the Lord gave him a mission. And his mission was to go to the house of Israel and to warn them of coming doom. This is where the placement of Isaiah's call in chapter 6 becomes really interesting because initially, as you read the first five chapters, you hear Isaiah's message to Israel with the pronouncement of seven woes. And one woe was for himself, which was in chapter 6 and verse 5. This message is much needed. Today, 
but there are so many preachers, so many churches that are not preaching it. They have succumbed to the culture. That is always the greatest fear, that you become the culture around you, and the church is always to be set aside from the culture. It's always to be different from the culture. It is to be the stinging conscience of the culture. But where is it now? Look where we are today. Look at the chaos that's in the world. And where is the church? The church has accepted it. The church has welcomed it. It's just brought it right on in. Instead of being, as I said, that stinging conscience to the world. And I believe really what's happening is many preachers are afraid of offending people. Because that's the nature of the culture now. If you don't agree with somebody and you offend them, then people speak out against this. And, of course, if you're a pastor, then they speak out against you. Ultimately, you could lose your job. Uh, If anything, people stop coming to your church. Or if you start talking about sin, people start leaving your church. And so what they end up doing is just giving in. They would not have survived this time. I can just tell you that right now. Because to be told to go... And you're going to preach until, verse 11, the cities are devastated and without inhabitant and houses are without people and the land is utterly desolate and the Lord has removed men far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. This, this is how long you're going to preach. And yeah, people are not going to hear your message. They're going to get fat on it. And what you have to say, uh, they're going to ignore you. The judgment that was coming on Judah was great. And if you've had, in any of the time that we've had studying this, that you've engaged yourself in the first five chapters, you can see how some of this judgment is. But compromise, there is no room for. Instead of worrying about offending lost people, we need to worry about offending God. Because God is the one whom we have to give account to. God is the one whom we have to answer to. And I live in that awareness all the time. When I meet people that I don't know, my first thought is, is do they know the Lord? And Lord, can somehow get me into this conversation so that I can talk to them about you? And so I may be sitting there like we had family over the other night, and we ended up having... 44-plus people at my house uh, the other night. I was like, wow, I don't think we've ever had that many people in our house. But the whole time I'm sitting there, I'm thinking about this, and especially with one person in specific that I wanted to talk to him, and there was never, ever an opportunity the whole night until yesterday on the phone. And I thank the Lord for that. I mean, I'll I'll take opportunities where I can get them, and I'm sure you do too. But I really do believe it's better to offend people now with the truth so that they can do something about it now. But if we never say anything, and they, they come into the church or they're around you, and they know you're a believer, and you never say anything to them, are you being true to your commission? Are you being true to your calling Again, the, the hope is, is by offending them now that they will do something about it. Galatians 3.24 says, Therefore the law 
has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. And there is a reason right there why we should be preaching the law of God. Nobody can get saved by the law of God, but you need to understand how it works when you're sharing the gospel because this is what brings about the knowledge of sin. Paul said in 1 Timothy 1, beginning at verse 8, that we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which I have been entrusted. As I said, the law's purpose is to expose sin. Paul said in Romans 7, 7, that he would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. And so when that occurred, it brings about this excitement towards sin that you didn't have until the law said no. I remember one time hearing Chuck Swindoll saying that he was jogging back in those days when he used to do that, and he came up to a park bench, and the park bench had just been painted, and someone stuck a sign on it and said, wet paint. And he said, you know what, i got paint all over me. It wasn't because I didn't know that the bench was wet. It's because I ignored the warning. I questioned the authority of the statement. Romans 3.20 concludes that the law, that through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And Romans 4.15 adds that the law also brings about wrath. But where there is no law, there is also no violation. So up until the giving of the law, yes, you had the conscience. But really, until the law was laid down, you didn't really have anything in writing in terms of a law telling people this is what God expects of you. But as I said, the law has its purpose. The law brings about sin. Romans 3.19 says that we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and that all the world may become accountable to God. That's the entire human race. But some beautiful words that we hear that kind of interrupt all of that is what we find in Galatians 4, 4 and 5, which says, but when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth... His son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So the law itself, it brings about this knowledge, it brings about this conviction of sin, but it also reveals to us who the lawgiver is. When God gave the law to the Israelites... He began this way, Exodus 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I am Yahweh. I am Yahweh your God. That's how he identifies himself. Before he gives the law, it's almost as if to say, you know, by whose authority am I to obey this? Well, he 
again, begins right there. And I believe this really brings us to Isaiah 6 because verse 3, he identifies himself, doesn't he? He identifies himself through the seraphim. What are the seraphim singing? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So he who is called Yahweh in verse 3 and Adonai in verse 1 we found out not too long ago that it was actually the Lord Jesus Christ, according to John twelve forty one. It is to him the seraphim are singing. But Israel rejected him, and so have many after him. But there were some who were gripped with astonishment, even in their unbelief. And I can think of two people. One in particular who was a French military political leader. He lived from 1769 to 1821. He made a great impression on Europe. His name was Napoleon Bonaparte. Listen to what he said about Jesus. He said, I know men, and I tell you that this Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person is the world. There is no possible term of comparison. Superficial minds see a resemblance between Christ and the founders of empires and the gods of other religions. That resemblance does not exist. Everything in Christ astonishes me. His spirit overawes me. His will confounds me. He is truly a being by himself. His ideas and sentiments, the truth which he announces, his manner of convincing are not explained either by human organization or by the nature of things, the nearer I approach, the more carefully I examine. Everything is above me. Everything remains grand, of a grandeur which overpowers. One can absolutely find nowhere but in him alone. The imitation or the example of his life. I search in vain in history to find the, sim the similar to Jesus Christ. Neither history, nor humanity, nor the ages, nor nature offer me anything with which I am able to compare it or explain it. Here, everything is extraordinary. That came from a pagan. Another man who had an impact on Europe as well as the rest of the world, and still having an impact today, is C.S. Lewis. His conversion is described as kicking and screaming coming into the kingdom. Interesting, right? In his book, Mere Christianity, he wrote this. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Christ. Like, I'm ready to accept Jesus' as great moral teacher but I don't accept his claims to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. 
What do you say about him this morning? Because I believe that Isaiah's vision reveals to us who he is. And not only that, but Jesus revealed who he is. He said in John 5.18 that God was his father. That statement alone caused a reaction. But that's not the only thing he said that caused reactions because most of what he said was very controversial. He said in John 8.58 that he was the I am. That's one of the seven I am statements that you find in the Gospel of John, which comes from Exodus 3.14. When Moses asked, who shall I say it is who's sending me to say, let my people go? And what did God say? I am is the one who's sending you. And Jesus claims to be the I am. We find that many times in Scripture. Like if you read Isaiah 9, 6, he's called God. Terms that are used just for the Father are also used for him. He further said, like in John 10.30, I and my Father are one. Or Revelation 1.11, that he is the Alpha and the Omega. And by the way, God said that he was the Alpha and the Omega. How can you have two first and two last? But you do. He could say all this because of what Scripture said of him. For example, in Matthew 1.21, Scripture says that he is Emmanuel... And what did Emmanuel mean? God with us. In Romans 9, 5, he's called the eternally blessed God. 2 Peter 1, 1, he's called our God, our Savior. 1 John 5, 20, he's called the true God and eternal life. Even God the Father himself in Hebrews 1, 8 calls him God. In John 20, 28, you hear people like Thomas, who boldly, Exclaim, my Lord and my God. You have Paul in Titus 2.13 calling Jesus our great God and Savior. Also in Titus 2.10 as well as chapter 3 verse 4, Paul calls him God our Savior. And here's where the terms that are usually used just for the Father are applied to the Son is Romans 10.13. Romans 10.13 says that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is a quotation from Joel 2.32. The term Lord is Yahweh. It's Yahweh. And that's his name in chapter 6 and verse 3. This is the Jesus who came that Christmas morning, born of lowly parents in a lowly place, Even his bedding was with the animals as Mary and Joseph had placed him in a feed trough. I don't know how many parents would have done that, but they did. They did what they needed to do. And I'm not really even sure that they understood fully what was going on here. Because you find different situations where Mary is pondering things that are happening. But what do you do when you know about him? We just identified the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I said earlier, when we started the service and we played the video at the beginning of the service, uh, Christmas is more than just the incarnation. It's, It's more than just 
God preparing a body for Jesus and sending him into this world to be born of a virgin. I mean, there's all kinds of the miraculous that surrounded his birth and surrounded where he went based upon where his parents took him, all within prophecy. But again, what do you do with this once you know it? Well, here's what you do with it. You tell everybody. You tell the world. You, you don't contain it. You don't keep it to yourself. When Isaiah was cleansed, he was ready to go and preach God's message. You know, when the birth of Christ was announced, it was first announced to shepherds. These were the lowly outcast of Israel. And after the angels gave them the good news about Jesus, and after they went and saw Mary and Joseph and the baby... Luke 2.17 tells us that they left and they made known the statement which had been told them about the child. These were the first New Testament evangelists. They went everywhere proclaiming the good news that the Savior, Israel's long-awaited Messiah, has come. So we've already seen, as I said, the vision the confession, the cleansing. And now we're looking at the commission. Up to this point, only the seraphim and Isaiah had spoken. And now, if you look at verse 8, it says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Having seen him in verse 1, Isaiah now hears him. And we're not sure which member of the Godhead is speaking, since this is Jesus on the throne. It could be Him speaking, or it could be the Father speaking. Either way, we're hearing in verse 8 an inner Trinitarian conversation. We hear this every now and then. But here's the inner Trinitarian conversation it says, The Lord asks, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? So we went from a singular now to a plural. And some say that the switch from the singular to the plural is referring to the Lord and the seraphim, but I believe that the plural here is referring to the Trinity. And you have a lot of good support for this. But not just support from other commentators. You have in the 3rd century, Jerome, he indicated that the sacrament was of the Trinity. Spence says the plural form is best explained by the light of which verse 3 throws on it as indicative of the doctrine of the Trinity. But really what helps us here is the phrase is almost exactly the same as it's used in the Old Testament with three other phrases or three other verses. Like Genesis 1.26 which says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Or Genesis 3.22, which says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. And we even find it in Genesis 11.7 at the Tower of Babel, when God says, Let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. It's clearly an indicator of a plurality, that the Godhead has plurality. Just as we pointed out on so many occasions that the first name that you come encounter with in Genesis 1-1 is Elohim, and Elohim has a plural ending. 
And so it could be translated, in the beginning, God's. But as you read the Bible, Old and New Testament, we find the same three individuals in the Godhead. We find the Father, we find the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we find the Holy Spirit. And as you trace down characteristics about them, they share these characteristics. They are holy. They are righteous. They are eternal. They are sovereign. As the list of attributes go on and on, they all three share them. In fact, some of those attributes that they share are incommunicable, which means that they don't share them with us. Others, they do. But there are some that they don't. R.C. Sproul tells us, he said, The Lord had permitted Isaiah to listen in on the sessions of the royal heavenly court. And again, we find that time after time in the scriptures, where the curtain or the veil is pulled back and you're able to see or you're able to listen in on a conversation that no human ears would ever be able to hear. And so after hearing the question from the heavenly court, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And how could he say that? Because he had just said in verse 5, he was a man of unclean lips and he dwelled with a people of unclean lips. Well, he could say that because he had now been cleansed. As it says at the end of verse 7, your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. See, since that has occurred, he was ready for service. And you know what, beloved? The same is true for us. When the Lord Jesus Christ saves us, He didn't save us to leave us sitting in a pew. He, he saves us so that we will serve Him and serve His people. And really, that's what the church is. It's a place to serve God. It's a place to serve one another. It's a place to magnify the Word of the Lord. And then when we leave and we go out into the world, we're serving Him through evangelism. And we're serving Him as we minister to other believers with our gifts. But he says, here am I, send me. You know, we can't always say that for everyone because not everyone had that readiness to go. You know, some wrangled over it. For example, Luther tells us that Moses begins, as it were, a wrangling and disputing with God and he would not accept his office. Do you remember that? It happened right after the burning bush experience. He's told that he's going to go to Pharaoh. He's going to go to the children of Israel. And he's going to lead the people out of, uh, out of Egypt. And he starts talking about his inadequacies. And he even talks about his brother. His brother's a better speaker than me. God got angry at him for that. But he wasn't alone. Lang says, Jeremiah refused because he feel, felt himself really too young and made of too tender stuff. Ezekiel, too, appeared inwardly at least to have had no relish for undertaking the commission, for he's exhorted not to be disobedient. And though he does not express them, his doubts and fears are disarmed. When you read in chapter 2, verse 6, to chapter 3, verse 9 of Ezekiel. We all know about Jonah. Jonah was the most rebellious and self-willed of all the prophets, and what did he do? He fled from the Lord when he was told to go to Nineveh. Are you running from God? 
when God has sent you and commissioned you as one of his children, one of his disciples, are you running away from him? Or are you doing what he has called you to do? So now that Isaiah volunteers to go, the Lord says in verse 9, one word, go. But here's what you need to tell the people. Verse 9, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Sometimes we look at our ministries and we measure success based upon reception. Preachers are good about that. I made you have a church today. Oh, we had this. Well, we had this. And then we had this many walking aisle. We had this many get saved. Evangelists are good about that. You know, we had this, this meeting and we had an X number of people get saved. And I agree with Ray Comfort. Where are they now? Because if they're not continuing with the Lord, then they didn't get saved. And your number is far more less than you just proclaimed everybody. But, but we're into this boasting thing, you know? That doesn't fit when you look at certain ministries like David Brainerd. Or you look at some other missionaries that never had a convert. They were there in the mission field for 30 years and never had a convert. How do you measure success? Do you say, well, he's a failure? No, success is not based upon whether you have a convert. Success is based upon whether you're obedient to the call. Because it's up to God to make the converts. You and I don't want to make converts of ourselves, right? And I know none of us in here has that thought in our mind that we want followers after us. We want them to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to see people embrace Christ and be forgiven of all their sin and be redeemed. But Isaiah, you, you need to understand, when you go to this people, they're going to listen, but they're not going to perceive anything that you're saying. They're not going to understand it. In fact, they're going to become more hardened by it. When he gave these words in verse 9, again, I remind you, this was at a time of judgment on Judah. Israel had just or Isaiah had just pronounced a series of curses on the people for their drunkenness, their debauchery, their immorality, their dishonesty, their injustice, their hypocrisy. And while Isaiah was preaching his message of doom, King Uzziah dies, and now the nation is plunged into some of its darkest days. In fact, when you want to read about the suffering that they were about to experience from God, it's not just in the book of Isaiah. It spreads into Ezekiel and to Jeremiah. And it goes all the way back into Deuteronomy. Of what would happen if they rejected the word of the Lord. And so they were on the verge of captivity by Babylon, which was part of God's judgment as well as the Romans but they still refuse to turn to God for help. So Isaiah's message was to be God's instrument for hiding the truth from an unreceptive people. And century later, centuries later, Jesus' parables would do the same exact thing. 
R.C. Sproul says, The prophetic word closes the way of God to those who are rebellious, proud, and hypocritical, but it opens it to the deaf, blind, humble, and poor. Think with me here because you, you read this phrase and you would think in your mind that God wants everybody to be saved and God would open up everybody's heart. And, but you don't have that taking place right here. In fact, Isaiah is being told that when you preach to these people, they're not going to hear anything you have to say. They're not going to understand anything you say. They're going to totally ignore you, and they're going to continue in their rebellion and their sin as before you began preaching to them. If anything I would gain encouragement by is to know that ahead of time. It's a little different when you're out there preaching and you don't know that. That the people that are hearing this are under a judicial hardening. See, they kept on hearing, but they did not understand. They kept on seeing, but they did not perceive because they had intentionally closed their eyes and their ears to God. They intentionally refused to understand with their heart. Otherwise, they would return to Him in order to be, for Him to heal them, to save them. But because they chose to ignore God and His Word, God judicially locked them up in their unbelief so that they would fear His judgment. And I want to tell you, folks, this is what's going on today. We see this going on today. Verses 9 and 10 are so important that they are quoted six times in the New Testament. I took some time to go through all six of those passages, and I want to just mention them to you because they all have a common thread. They all have the common theme. <clears throat> yeah, they all rejected Jesus, but here's the question. Why? Why did they do this? It's found in all the passages. It makes this make sense. When Jesus quoted Isaiah 6, 9, and 10... In Matthew 13, Matthew 13 was the parable of the soils, which when he gave the parable and interpreted the parable for the disciples, it was more talking about the conditions of the heart and how the gospel falls on each particular heart. Each condition of the heart yields a different kind of response. The context tells us in Matthew 13 that he was speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees as well as to the crowds. So you had mixed group. You had religious, you had pagan, you had the disciples that were there. If you back up to chapter 11 and verse 20, it tells us that they would not repent. But Matthew 13, 14 tells us because they didn't want to repent, they really wanted to destroy him. After he healed a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute in Matthew 12, 22, the Pharisees said this, The man cast out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons, and therefore they had blasphemed the Holy Spirit. This group right here was not interested in Jesus being the Messiah. They were only interested, according to Matthew 13, 38, in the signs. That's all they cared about. In the parallel passage in Mark... Jesus told his disciples that those outside the kingdom get everything in parables so that while seeing they may not see 
and not perceive, and while hearing they may hear and not understand, otherwise they might return and be forgiven. When we hear in John's account that Jesus said this to those who had seen so many signs before them, it tells us that they were yet not believing in him. Are you starting to see it? This statement made in Isaiah 6-9 is because of their refusal to repent, their refusal to believe. In the case of Israel, their refusal to obey God. After Paul had arrived at Rome, remember he appealed to Caesar. Acts 28-17 says, After three days Paul called together those who were the leading men of the Jews, and after testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets, from morning until evening, it says some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. And that's when he quotes Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. So this phrase has a reference to those who refuse to believe. Just like Israel, they were blind, they were dumb, they were without understanding. Why? Because God had given them over to the hardness of their heart. John Walton said, The description of eyes and ears that do not function as they should, or a heart that is hard or heavy, matches that which occurs elsewhere in medical texts or in contexts of fear. For example, 1 Samuel 25, you have Nabal. Nabal suffered some sort of paralysis, some sort of stroke or heart attack, and his heart became like stone. We're told in a Babylonian wisdom hymn that a sufferer describes his fear-induced paralysis as resulting in eyes that do not see and ears that do not hear. See, Isaiah is to go and proclaim truth to a corrupt and sensual people, and the result will be that they will not hear. They're so wicked that they will not attend to it. They will become even more hardened and yet go as though certain of producing this effect, he tells him still to proclaim it. As I said, it's same today. See, the truth is that there are many people who have been judicially hardened. And let me just show you how that works then as well as now. Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 18, because what follows verse 18 is telling us how the wrath of God is revealed. Remember verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So what you're going to hear from that point on is the people who, who suppress the truth. And they do it in unrighteousness. Look at verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. 
Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Three times we read there that God gave them up. It's in verse 24, verse 26, and verse 28. Verse 24, God gave them over to the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Verse 26, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural, in the same way men abandoned the natural function of the woman, and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts, and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And then the third is in verse 28. God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. This is where America's at. What gives rise to a judicial hardening is a sexual revolution. What do you have going on in our culture today? What are you constantly bombarded with? Homosexuality? Lesbianism? More than one gender, gender transitioning, mutilation of genitals, and so forth. I mean, it's... And the people that try to come out of that, I read two articles this week, of people that have come out of that, and one of them is actually suing the doctors because of all the mutilation that they did to their body. Good luck with that one. You freely gave it. You freely allowed it. But they're going younger and younger and they're doing it to kids. Puberty, puberty blockers, reading about. And doing this without parents knowing. I tell you, if there's any gateway of hell, it's in the public school system. I'll just tell you that right now. Because that's where a lot of this stuff is introduced to kids. And you know another place it's introduced? In the colleges. In an earlier day, I did want my kids to go to college. I don't want to go to college now. If you're going to go, you're only going to go to one or two. It's going to be very limited if you go. Because this is the kind of stuff's going on. 
Am I saying that a strong believer can't survive a situation like that? Yeah, he can. But if you have a choice to put your child in such a situation, choose not to. Why put them there so that they can struggle and be fed things that are ungodly and unnatural? Like he says here, they, they exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. If anything that you hear about all of this is unnatural. And society can't survive on it. You've got to depend on the people that, that are doing this right, the natural function of man and woman, for the unnatural to carry on. And so that's why you have uh, homosexual adoptions and so forth. The penalties are also built in. Folks, we want to know where AIDS comes from. It's the judgment of God. Say, so what about innocent people that get AIDS? Generally speaking, it's the judgment of God. And by the way, your sin doesn't protect others around you from the consequences that are in your life. But let me say this. If you do not give up your sin, you'll be given over to it. That's essentially what we're seeing here. If you don't give up your sin, then He's going to give you right over to it. To its consequences, to its devastation, its destruction. If you refuse God, and to use the language that Isaiah is using here, you have ears that are dull. I'll give you even a better word. You're stupid. <laughs> That's what the Hebrew means. You're stupid. Your eyes are dim, which literally means they means to besmear their eyes, and besmear means to seal up. And interesting about that, the Oriental monarchs would seal up a prisoner's eyes as a form of punishment. Now, we hear people getting their eyes plucked out, and uh, I don't know which would be worse. Have your eyes plucked out or have your eyes sealed shut? Either way, it doesn't sound good, does it? If they weren't insensitive and their ears dull and their eyes dim... Verse 10 says, Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and return and be healed. But because they have willfully refused to believe and to obey the gospel, God gives them over to their sin. If you look at verse 11, Isaiah asks another question. Lord, how long? Now, the question for us is how long? Is that referring to the length of the time of Israel's judgment? Or is it referring to how long he'll have to preach this kind of message? Well, it could be both. Verse 11 says, God answered, Until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Here's the 
here's you some history. In 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, he annihilated the Egyptian army, effectively controlling all of Palestine up to the Egyptian border. In 597 BC, Jerusalem was attacked by the Babylonians. Jehoiakim, who was the king, was carried into captivity. Eleven years later, the city of Jerusalem was destroyed, and nearly all of the Jewish inhabitants of Palestine were carried away as captives to Babylon. Only the poorest were left in Judah, according to 2 Kings 24 or 25:21. Verse 12. Here in Isaiah 6 says, The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Now, here's where chapter numbers or verse numbers kind of mess you up, because I'll be honest with you, what I was going in a total different direction of verse 12 till I spent a little bit more time with it, and I went, oh my goodness, I'm going far away from what it's saying. It was the phrase, the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. That was the phrase that was kind of moving me to think, well, here's what's left in the land. You got all of these forsaken places, all of these idols, all of these uh, places of worship that were set up there. But that's not what it means. It actually means in 2 Kings 24 and Jeremiah 4. Let me read these two verses. 2 Kings 24 14 tells us that Nebuchadnezzar led away into exile all of Jerusalem and all the captains and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths, none remained except the poorest people in the land. Jeremiah 4.29 adds, At the sound of the horsemen and the bowmen, every city flees. They go into the thickets and climb among the rocks. Every city is forsaken, and no man dwells in them. That's the meaning. But let me just say this, in the midst of all this doom and gloom, there's a glimmer of hope, and it's in verse 13, but it's not until you get to the end of verse 13. It says, yet there will be a tenth portion in it. It will be again subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled or cut down. The holy seed is its stump. God actually promised a tenth portion would be redeemed, but they would also be subject to burning or be subject to being purified by suffering. So even if a tenth survived the first destruction, it shall be destroyed by the second. Isaiah 5.25 says, On this account, the anger of the Lord has burned against His people. He has stretched out His hand against them and struck them down, and the mountains quaked and their corpses lay like refuse in the middle of the streets, for all his anger is not spent, but his hand is still stretched out. Which goes with verse 13. And what he even tells us further is the illustration that he gives right there. He describes them like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it's cut down. The Middle Eastern terebinth and oak trees, they can produce new shoots even when they appear to have been cut or damaged beyond all hope. John Peter Lang says this, after every overthrow, yea, after the most fearful visitations, that aimed at the very extinction of the people, a stump or a stem was still always left in the ground. This people is even not to be destroyed. There is nothing tougher than the life of this everlasting Jew, as in spiritual respects, it is just the same. Though every knee seems to bow to the old or to the new bell, yet the Lord has preserved always a fragment. 
in faithfulness. In 1 Kings 19, 18, it mentions 7,000 who did not bow the knee to Baal. So there's where some glimmer of hope is, even in the midst of this. But really, the glimmer of hope is found in the future promise of the Messiah. Go with me to chapter 11 of Isaiah. Now, if you back up to chapter 10 and verse 20, it says, Now in that day the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. Verse 22, Only a remnant within them will return. Verse 25, for in a very little while, while my indignation against you will be spent and my anger will be directed to their destruction. Again, it's only going to be a remnant that's going to survive. But go to chapter 11, and what's it say? Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from its roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor, and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. And then it begins to describe the earthly millennial reign from that point on. So the, the, the hope is the Messiah. The hope is the coming of the Messiah. Chapter 11 is a foreshadowing of that messianic promise. The Messiah will come from the remnant of Israel and fulfill Israel's obligations to the covenant in a way that they never could. I like you, praise the Lord. And I hear something like that. The Messiah has come. You know, when you read Matthew 1 and Luke 3 and you read those genealogies and you kind of skim past them, those genealogies are so important that for without them, there would be no way to prove who is the Messiah. In 70 AD, at the destruction of the temple... <laughs> All of the genealogical records were destroyed. Today, the Jews that do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah and they're looking for a Messiah to come will have no way to prove who that Messiah is. Have no way to prove that he is the rightful one to the throne of David because of the destruction of those records. Beloved, our Messiah has come. His name is Jesus. He is the Messiah. His coming was prophesied and it was fulfilled on that Christmas morning. The angel told Joseph in Matthew one twenty one that Mary would bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. See, God had to judge our sin. And praise God, he did that in the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. 
So as you celebrate today, this Christmas Day, let this be a reminder of the true meaning of Christmas. Let this be a reminder of why God sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. It's not about gifts that we share with one another, but it's about His gift that He shared with us. Don't be like Israel. Don't be obstinate and stubborn and stiff-necked and foolish. Acknowledge your sin. Hear His warnings. Give heed to His warnings. I'd like to conclude our time together by remembering why Jesus came. And that's by us celebrating the Lord's Supper together. We would somewhat be the remnant in here, small in number. But it is a reminder, every time we do this, Paul says that you're proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. And we're to do this until He comes. So this morning, as we share this together, thank Him, praise Him. Don't just look at Him as His birth. Look at His whole life. Look at everything He did in His coming. And yet, look at the things that are future. Father, we thank you so much for this time that we've had together on this Christmas morning. We thank you for the study of your word and pray that it's been plain to us, that we understand it. I pray, Heavenly Father, as we remember our Savior, not just his birth, not just his life, but what he came for, what was the purpose of his coming that He would save His people from their sins. Help us, Lord, to see in the, in the table that reminder of what You did for us 